Well, hello, Nancy. Hi, doctor. How's the osteoporosis medicine I prescribed working for you? Well, it's fine, doctor. But you know, I saw this commercial for something called Avista, Reloxifene Hydrochloride. Yes, Avista. It's prescription only, and it's the one medicine that treats osteoporosis and reduces the risk of invasive breast cancer in postmenopausal women with osteoporosis. It's important to note, though, that Avista does not treat breast cancer, prevent its return, or reduce the risk of all forms of breast cancer. Am I at risk for invasive breast cancer? I don't have a family history. Well, family history is important, but there are other risk factors that I need to take into consideration, including your advancing age and personal history. And based on my risk assessment, you may be at risk. So you think Avista is right for me? Well, individual results may vary, but I think for you the benefits of Avista would outweigh the potential risks. Let's switch you today. Well, thank you, doctor. I'm glad I asked about it. <laughs> no problem. Avista increases the risk of blood clots and should not be used by women who have or have had blood clots in the legs, lungs, or eyes. Avista may increase the risk of dying from stroke in women at high risk for heart disease or stroke. Talk to your doctor about all your medical conditions. Seek care immediately if you have leg pain or warmth, swelling of the legs, hands, or feet, chest pain, shortness of breath, or a sudden vision change. Do not use Avista if you are pregnant, nursing, or may become pregnant, as it may cause fetal harm. Women with liver or kidney disease should use Avista with caution. Avista should not be taken with estrogens. Side effects may include hot flashes, leg cramps, and swelling. For more information about Avista, contact your Lilly sales representative, visit www.avista.com, see our ad in Good Housekeeping, or call 1-888-44-AVISTA. You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly. Your host is Dr. Lawrence Stryker, Assistant Clinical Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine. Pills, patches, potions, is anything really new in contraception? You are listening to Reach MD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health. I am Dr. Lauren Stryker, your host, and with me today is Dr. David Grimes, a clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, North Carolina. With the number and variety of available contraceptives, some people assume that a woman who inadvertently gets pregnant must have been careless or negligent. The reality is that even the most foolproof birth control method has the potential to fail. In fact, slightly more than half of the more than 3 million unintended pregnancies that occur each year in the United States are due to contraception failure, not failure to use contraception. Clearly, we have a long way to go to decrease the number of unintended pregnancies. Today, we are joined by Dr. Grimes to discuss new innovations in contraception. Welcome, Dr. Grimes. Thanks very much. Well, Dr. Grimes, I'd like to start by talking about contraception that's already FDA-approved, but still relatively new and potentially underutilized. I would imagine that you and I have both been practicing long enough to remember Norplant, the six matchstick-sized progesterone implants inserted under the skin in a woman's arm that had a brief surge of popularity in the 1990s. I remember taking them out was a real nightmare. But now we have Implanon, the single-rod implantable contraception, which has been approved by the FDA. 
Tell me about your experience with Implanon and your thoughts on this device. Well, Implanon clearly stands on the shoulders of the former Norplant, but the difficult removals you referred to before were not the problem with Norplant, but the problem with us as physicians. And it was arrogant physicians and plaintiff's lawyers who really drove that product off the market. Some physicians said, oh, I don't need to be trained. I'm a surgeon. I can do this. It's very simple. Well, it wasn't. It wasn't they need, simple. They needed to be trained. Yeah. And when they did the insertions poorly, specifically too deeply, then the insertion process was complex and the removal problem was even greater. So I I think we physicians probably did the real disservice to our patients by not getting adequately trained. And then the plaintiff's lawyers moved in and the product was taken off the market. I think that the company marketing the Implanon is trying very hard to avoid those kinds of problems and has had a very aggressive and careful training program for physicians and other clinicians. It may even be too aggressive and too careful because, quite frankly, I'm in Chicago and I know very few people that have been trained and I've been asking to be trained for the last year and they don't seem to have the resources to do that. Has that been your experience that yes, yes, people indeed. can't and get I think trained? I think you're exactly right. And I think that's a national problem. And I think that what happened when Sharing Plow bought Organon, the chaos resulting from that sort of brought the training program to a halt. My hope is that we'll get off the ground once again. But I think there's been a hiatus for a good period of time now in national training. Yeah. And do you see that there's a demand on the part of the patients for this device? Are they asking and not able to get it? It fills a unique niche. We have plenty of practitioners in my shop who have been trained, so we have no difficulty getting inserted. And in North Carolina, where I practice, it's almost free through Medicaid, so it's proven to be quite popular. And is that a hard it's, sell? Do you have to, or the patients no, are coming and asking for it? No, we are very enthusiastic here uh, in my clinic about forgettable contraception, and that includes the two IUDs and the implant. So women like the fact that they get superb contraception with nothing to remember. Are you concerned about bone loss, such as we have seen with Depo-Provera with long-term use? No, the amount of progestin one gets with an implant or with a mini pill, a progestin-only pill, is really very tiny. And even with Depo-Provera or DMPA, there is transient mineral loss, but it returns promptly upon discontinuation. And that's been a big brouhaha caused by some very bad science at the FDA. There's not a clinical study anywhere in the world that has linked DMPA to later fracture. Indeed, the World Health Organization was so outraged by the misconduct of the FDA in this regard with the black box warning that they put out a position paper saying there should be no limitations on DMPA for any woman for any duration. Is the systemic level of progesterone high enough to be used for non-contraceptive benefits, such as to use it with unopposed estrogen in the postmenopausal crowd? I don't know the answer to that, and I don't know if it's been looked at, but I would certainly lean toward putting a levonorgestrel device in the uterus in that setting, which has been thoroughly studied. Now, tubal ligation is still the most common form of birth control, but of course requires general anesthesia and an incision. Hysteroscopic tubal occlusion offers obvious advantage, but is performed relatively rarely in spite of the fact that it's been FDA approved now for a number of years. What do you think is going on with Eshore? I think the use is growing slowly, but again, it's not a simple technique. One has to be an adept hysteroscopist, and it takes some learning to be able to cannulate both of the tubal ostia, but I do think it has appeal. There are a couple of interesting studies out of both Finland and Britain showing that as use of the levonorgestrel device increases, rates of both hysterectomy and tubal sterilization decline. And my impression here locally in North Carolina has been the same, that a number of women come in to get their workups for tubal sterilization, and our young women physicians, many of whom are using long-acting contraception, discourage them, and they leave with an IUD or an implant instead. Well, that's an interesting point, because given the advantages of intrauterine contraception, I can't even think of a situation that there would be an advantage for Eshore, which I've had that discussion with some of my colleagues that seem very enthusiastic. And I think it comes down to the reluctance on the part of many people to place an IUD. Well, Dan Michelle and I, in January of 2008, published an article in Contraception arguing that intrauterine contraception should be thought of 
as an alternative to interval tubal sterilization because almost any scale by which you compare the two, the IUD comes out better. Absolutely. You know, hormonal contraception, of course, can now be delivered by pill, patch, or vaginal ring. Let's first talk a little bit about the patch. Of the hormonal contraceptives, the ortho-ever patch currently delivers the highest level of estrogen. And there has been some concern, of course, played up by the media, that there is a higher risk of venous blood clots in patch users and in women who use other methods of hormonal contraception. Can you talk a little bit about this? Sure. Two comments. First of all, the serum levels of estrogen aren't predictive of who's going to get a clot. We just have no good valid surrogate marker for who's going to get a venous thrombosis, whether it be a hormone level or coagulation test. Secondly, there have been a couple of large studies to look at the risk of venous thromboembolism. One found no increase in risk, and the other found a doubling in risk, but not an astounding increase. So the literature is divided on that point. It's unsettled at present, but it remains FDA approved. It's safe and effective. And do you have any reluctance at all to use the ortho-ever patch? None. None. So that's not something you would counsel a woman on who's perhaps a smoker or a little older or that you otherwise think is at increased risk? Because I, I think that's what's going on in a lot of communities. The risk of venous thromboembolism in young women is very low. So a multiple, even assuming a twofold increased risk, the multiple of a very rare event is still a very rare event. So any attributable risk would be negligible on a population effect. And in contrast, the alternative for many young women is a pregnancy, which is much more risky much, in much terms risky. of venous thromboembolism. I think people forget that, how just, how, just <laughs> how risky pregnancy is. We doctors is. don't. <laughs> no, exactly. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to a discussion on new options in contraception on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and I'm speaking with Dr. David Grimes from the University of North Carolina. Dr. Grimes, I'd like to move on a little bit to the vaginal ring, which, in contrast to the patch, delivers the lowest estrogen and progesterone levels of all the estrogen progesterone hormonal contraceptive options. First of all, what are your thoughts on the use of the vaginal ring? And then specifically with the increased obesity in this country, are you concerned that the woman with a BMI greater than 30 might have an unacceptably high pregnancy rate? There is some evidence, mainly with oral contraceptive studies, to suggest that women who are substantially over ideal body weight may have a modest increase in the risk of pregnancy. We're talking in the range of 50, 60 percent at most. So that would translate into perhaps two to four extra pregnancies per 100 women years. But the greater risk, at least in the eyes of the Royal College, relates to thromboembolism because obesity itself is an independent risk factor for venous thromboembolism, and oral contraceptives are as well, and the two may synergize. So most people are a bit skittish about putting really heavy women on oral contraceptives for those two concerns, although there has been a recent editorial by James Trussell arguing that the risk is really overblown. Now, speaking about just in general how we prescribe hormonal contraception, I think we're starting to fortunately see the death of the 21-7 cycle, and more and more we're having the shorter interval or no interval at all. Do you think there is any reason in any woman in any circumstance to have a pill-free interval? Many women benefit from a pill-free interval, particularly those who suffer with their menses, and that's a large number of people. For example, women who have menstrual migraines. No, I'm sorry, excuse me. I meant a pill-free interval that will give them a period. I see no medical reason to have a period, none at all. I think that should be a woman's choice. If she wants to bleed, that's fine. If she wants not to bleed, that's fine. But that should be her choice, and we should help her achieve her goals. Why do you think it's taken so long to get to the point where we are encouraging women to have this lack of menstrual cycles? I think women have quietly been doing this on their own with or without their clinician's blessing for a number of decades. But I think it's really surfaced in recent years largely because of a very influential book called Is Menstruation Obsolete by Coutinho and Siegel. And in it, they argue from both a biological as well as an anthropological point of view that menstruation is an aberration in our society and not something that's natural or healthy. Are there any new intrauterine devices on the horizon? 
Nothing in the near future here, but that's an anomaly because around the world there are far more devices available. For example, China has like 35 different nationally made IUDs. If you go south of our border in Mexico, for example, they have six different sizes of the copper T. I think we ought to see development of smaller IUDs, especially for women who've not been pregnant before. What other new methods of contraception are on the horizon? The Population Council is uh, in trials now looking at a vaginal ring that will be used for an extended period of time. There's also another birth control pill that will be coming out that's going to have a new progestin and estradiol as the estrogen rather than ethanol estradiol. So that probably will be on the market in the near future. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Grimes, who has enlightened us on recent advances in contraception. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker. You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For a complete program guide and podcasts, visit ReachMD.com. For comments or questions, call us toll-free at 888-MD-XM-157. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly, with your host, Dr. Lauren Stryker. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, please go to ReachMD.com forward slash Women's Health.